Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So a number of years ago, I read a book called The Trellis and the Vine by Colin Marshall and Tony Payne. And I hadn't thought about this book for years, and God brought it back to my mind as I was preparing for this sermon. And uh, this book is just old enough. I had to chuckle this past week as I was flipping through it. I got to the back and I noticed, do you remember these? The CD with bonus material. But I feel like the message of the book is just as relevant today, maybe even more so. So in the book, they utilize this extended metaphor, not just any metaphor, an agrarian metaphor, how Christ-like of them, right? And this metaphor is designed to challenge us, to consider a, a new paradigm of thinking about ministry and thinking about life inside the church. So if we think about spiritual formation as being like cultivating a garden, Whenever we cultivate a garden, we have to have different tools in order to bring structure and order. And one of those tools is a trellis. Now, a trellis is simply a framework used to support a growing vine or plant. We know about the need for trellis right now. We've been trying to grow a tomato plant, and it is like going crazy. It's totally outgrown the very simple little trellis uh, that we have, and it keeps getting blown over by all this wind we've been getting. And so sometimes we don't have enough trellis, but their challenge in this book is actually just the opposite. So the main point that they're trying to make in the book is that in the life of the church, we need both trellis and vine. But we have to understand the difference between the two. We need to know what trellis is and what vine is. And their challenge is that At times, maybe even regularly, we can get so focused, so enamored with building the trellis that we end up with something like this, right? Which is is nice. But the goal of a trellis is that it would have a vine, that it would have produced fruit, that there would be flowers that are displayed. And while some activities are generally related to both, Church polity, the organization, the systems, the processes, the programs, the committees, the practical decisions we make about what and when and where. This is all trellis. We need trellis. It's important. But if we get so focused on the trellis, we will forget to feed the life of the vine. And we end up with something like this. A very impressive trellis, but no vine. And we've missed the point. What we really want and what we truly need is something more like this. The true spiritual life that comes from abiding in Christ, from beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ, from wrestling with God in prayer, from getting on our knees and humbling ourselves and submitting to God's will and God's ways. We need the vine. We want the fruit of the vine. Because while there is trellis there, the point is not the trellis. That's just the framework. And so I believe that their word is 
is prophetic to us, it's very important. And they ask this question. What if we're spending too much time, too much energy, too many resources building and maintaining and even arguing over the trellis rather than feeding the life of the vine? It's a hard question. It's an important question. And this book and that question came to my mind because I think in some ways it represents the partnership between two of the minor prophets, between Haggai that we looked at last week and this week's book, Zechariah. So last week we looked at Haggai who preached to the returning exiles, be careful that you don't just focus on building your own nice houses and you neglect the rebuilding of the house of the Lord. He challenged them to restore the temple as a special point of connection or communion between God and people. To trust that even though it didn't outwardly look as impressive, that God would fill that place with his glory and that he would use a faithful remnant to continue to accomplish his purposes. And so Zechariah comes and builds on the ministry of Haggai. And I think Haggai's message, essentially, is to be careful that you don't place all of your focus on rebuilding the place and forget to rebuild the people. In other words, yes, you need to rebuild the trellis, quite literally in this case, the temple. They were supposed to do that. That was important. But if they rebuilt the temple and did not rebuild their spiritual lives, they would commit all of the same mistakes as their ancestors who had come before them. He's saying, pay attention, be warned. Don't rebuild the trellis to the neglect of feeding the life of the vine. Because an elaborate trellis with no vine does not impress God. It doesn't honor God. It doesn't glorify God. Because a place without people is not a church. It's a museum. It's a tourist destination. We have plenty of those in our world today. But the people, even without a place, are the church and the life of the vine. And in the flow of God's story, he's made it clear that the particular place is less important now in the new covenant era. And it's not about making sacrifices at a certain place at a certain time. The sacrifice of worship is now in the lives of God's people each and every day. And so as the book of Haggai was primarily focused on restoring the house of the Lord, so now the book of Zechariah is focused on building the people of the Lord, to rebuild their spiritual lives. So in order to orient us back to where we are in the bigger picture of the story, we're going to go back to our timeline briefly of the prophets. Zechariah is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon. The book begins by telling us the date of the prophecy, which is just two months after the word of Haggai came. Now, last week, Dan mentioned an important 70-year period of time that was the exile. This was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, in our particular timeline, for those of you that pay attention to details, you may have noticed that from 586 to 538 is not 70 years. So, just in case any of you were sitting here last week and like me going, yeah, this might not be clear. I wanted to just clarify really quickly that 70-year period and how we get there. So there's two possibilities that are thrown out there as to the 70-year period of exile as understood uh, as a fulfillment of prophecy. The first way we get there is we start in 608, which was the year that 
King Jehoiakim was made vassal to Nebuchadnezzar. That was an initial surge against the people of God, against Jerusalem. Things didn't totally fall apart, but they kind of came under the beginnings of Babylonian uh, leadership. And in that time, the first set of exiles were left. So formally, the exile did begin, even though we don't really think of it as beginning until 586, when Jerusalem totally collapsed. In 608, some of the exiles are deported. That would have included Daniel and his famous three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That happened 608, 607, right in there. So 70 years from that to 538, when Cyrus declared that the exiles could go back officially, that's 70 years. So that's one possible calculation. The other one is you start counting in 586 when Jerusalem fell, and you end, if you count 70 years from that, in 516. What happened in that year? Well, that was the year they finished rebuilding the temple and dedicated it to the Lord. So they may have thought of that as the official end of the exile because now they have a temple again and they uh, dedicated it to the Lord according to the book of Ezra. So just for the detail sticklers out there, just wanted to set your mind at ease uh, that the prophecy uh, did come true and uh, we understand that the exile lasted 70 years. Now, you would think that things would have gotten better after the exile and that the people of God would have learned until you start thinking about your own life and how you keep making those same mistakes over and over again. And so God must send prophets to this new group of people, right? And, and a generation later, really two generations, but, but a new set of people. And God raises up Zechariah to call these exiles back into covenant faithfulness, even as they come back into the land. And his message is a call for covenant renewal. Here's what the language looked like. Verse 3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Covenant renewal. See, the relationship between God and people throughout Scripture is primarily described in terms of a covenant relationship. And a covenant is an oath-bound promise that is sealed in blood. God made a covenant that he would be our God and we would be his people. That's the repeated language throughout the Old Testament. And as we read all of Scripture, we come to understand that God's covenant is a covenant of grace. And it is what we call a unilateral covenant meaning it is unconditional. It is only dependent upon one party's faithfulness, and that would be God, not us. And that even when we are unfaithful, he is still committed that he is our God and we are his people. Amen. Amen. You see, every other relationship, every other contract, every other even human-initiated covenant like marriage, we know that we as human beings, we, we can't keep it. There, there are two sides and it falls apart. But with God, he made this covenant with us that cannot be broken and it will not fail. And yet, even within that, God gave us his law and he gave us the stipulations of the covenant and he gave us this, this blueprint for human flourishing and he gave us his law, which is designed to restrain evil. And God says to us over and over again, if you do this, it'll go well for you. If you don't do this, not going to go so well, right? God, God is still faithful to us. We're still in covenant relationship with us, but there are consequences for our sin. 
Because God wants us to be in right relationship with him. He knows what we were created for. And so even that discipline, even that correction, even that fierce judgment, like the people I just experienced, it was all designed to bring them back into covenant relationship with God. And God calls his people over and over again back into a renewal of that faithfulness. So a couple of weeks ago, we were back on the East Coast, uh, and my parents, in honor of their 45th wedding anniversary, did a vowel renewal ceremony. And it was a big party. I mean, they threw a big party. And they asked me to do sort of the opening words and uh, the call to worship for the service. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to say, of course I wanted to be funny, but I also wanted to be serious. And I I was looking back at some of the instances in the Old Testament of covenant renewal, because that's really what they were doing, all right? Not just renewing vows, but a, but a covenant partnership together. And I was, I was really surprised. I forgot how many different ways, formally and informally, the people of God keep coming back and renewing that covenant with God, because God knew that we would fail over and over again. So he made provision for his mercy and grace for those who will repent of their sin. And God's covenant renewal calls us to a renewed trust in God's power and God's provision. And so as Zechariah sets this up and he calls the people back to renew this covenant relationship, he uses a particular title for God, which is fascinating. Three times in these opening six verses, he uses the title, the Lord Almighty. Yahweh Sebaoth. It is the Lord who is the commander of hosts, who is the chief, who is the commander of the army angels of heaven. That's what this title means. Wow, that's pretty intense. It's fierce. It, it would be likened in some ways to thinking about the president, who is the president and has these governmental roles, but is also the commander in chief of the armed forces, right? Who is head over the military. That is what this title is like for God, to think of the Lord Almighty. He is the one who has power. He commands the angels of heaven to go, and they go, and they do his will. He is powerful and strong. I think Zechariah is using this title specifically to remind the people of God, who've been through a lot, that God is still the one who's in control. He is the one in charge. He's calling them to surrender and to trust. And the same is true for us today. He calls them to covenant repentance. Verse 4, do not be like your ancestors. This is how the book begins. Learn from the mistakes of the past. Right? We all have things from our family of origin that we want to continue, traditions and ways of relating There are things about the people who raised us where we want to be like them. And then there are things that we don't want to do. And we want to do very differently. We want to learn from our past. And Zechariah is saying, learn from those who came before you, your ancestors. And in a way, if we think about our metaphor of the trellis and the vine, I think he's saying, your ancestors, they had a great trellis. They had an incredible temple. They had, a, they had great programs, if you will, great structures. They had a lot of good things going for them, and they still missed it. They missed the life of the vine. It was clear that their lack of nourishment from the vine was revealed in their injustice and their pride and their selfishness. 
their lack of love for mercy, their concern for the vulnerable and the poor, all of the things that we've talked about, all these themes of the prophets, they missed it. And it wasn't out of ignorance. He says, God came to your ancestors and tried to call them back, and they didn't. Learn from them. And in verse 6, we're told that this generation, at least initially, their posture was that they repented. And they said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Though their response here is recorded in such a simple way, I think we see in their response all of the basic pieces of a prayer of repentance. A lot of good examples in the Bible. right? Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance. Daniel's corporate prayer of repentance in Daniel chapter 9. We see these basic pieces, and that is, first of all, an acknowledgement of the past. Yep, mistakes were made. And in fact, even the mistakes of other people, sometimes we now live with those consequences. We don't like that in our very individualistic culture. We think that it shouldn't work that way, but we still we inherit the brokenness of those who have come before us. We have to acknowledge our past. And then secondly, we have to say, man, those people, why did they mess it up for us? No, we have to say we're also a part of it. We have to admit our guilt, our participation in those same sins. And then third, we have to affirm God's justice. They say, you know what, God, you told us. You told us what the consequence was going to be, and we did it anyway. Did you ever do that with your parents growing up? You knew the consequence. It was clear. And you either thought it was worth it anyway, or you, just, or you didn't think they were going to do it, or whatever. But they say, God, you acted justly. You were right to bring that fierce punishment upon us because you told us if you continue in these ways this is what I'm going to do God you are just and then we see in verse 16 a little bit further down it says therefore this is what the Lord says I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt as we come to God and we pray and we repent and we acknowledge our sinfulness before God we can ask for mercy And in fact, we're in an even better position to ask for mercy than the people of God then because we understand now what Jesus has done for us. We have a a better picture. We have a more full revelation. And so we can acknowledge God's justice, and yet it is right, it is good that we ask for God's mercy and we place it in his hands. Repentance is a central theme. It's in every major part of the Bible, and it means to turn away from sin and to turn back to God. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. Make a U-turn. Turn back to God. The goal of repentance is that restored relationship, that restored fellowship with God. And I know that there are many, in fact, probably all of us at times that struggle to receive God's mercy and grace. We think that we've done something too long. It's too bad. We think maybe God will never forgive me. We all struggle with that at times. And we need to be reminded that God's love can never be extinguished, even by by the depth of or the degree or the longevity of our sin, right? Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And I love how Pastor Dane Ortland puts it. 
in his devotional on the Psalms. He says, your sins can darken your awareness of God's love, but they cannot darken the reality of that love. I love that. They cannot darken the reality of that love. Our sin causes a barrier between us and God, but it's really on from our end and our perspective, right? Through the work of Jesus, that forgiveness is there, but, but sin causes us to turn away, causes us in shame to turn away from God. And we feel further away from him. But in reality, he is there and he's calling us home. He is pursuing us. He's like the father and the prodigal that runs after the son who returns home. And so the book of Zechariah calls us, again, like all the prophets, to turn away, to turn back. And I want to encourage you and challenge you. Don't walk away from spending a whole summer in the minor prophets without finding that point for you in your life of repentance. Whatever it is, I, there's something that has, that has been sparked as you've been reading God's word, and we have been talking about this theme of repentance, there's something in your life, it may be something you've carried for a long time, something that over and over again that you have struggled with. And maybe you can't even envision your life without that. But God says, I can. I can. I will. And don't believe those voices of condemnation that try to put you down and say, this will never change. You will never change. You cannot learn new ways. Don't listen to that. Listen to the voice of Jesus who says, turn back to me. Return to me. And I will return to you. I am there. Nothing can separate you from my love. Turn back. Yes, I know. I know how many times. He knows when you'll fail again. And yet we keep coming back. Keep repenting. Keep turning back. Listen to the voice of conviction. And repent. Now all of this is just the first six verses. And there's a lot of the rest of Zechariah. So I just want to give you a quick snapshot of some of the major movements to where eventually he ends up with an incredible vision of hope for the coming Messiah and a better way of living. So the rest of the first half of the book of Zechariah, for, for those of you who have been reading in our reading plan, um, we actually finish Zechariah today. We did not plan that. That's incredible. Uh, but in our journey through the Bible, we come to the end of Zechariah today. And so if you, if you have read it before or recently, you'll know that there's this whole section of Zechariah that gets really weird. I mean, this, these visions and their strange dreams, right? So everybody who's ever had weird dreams, you're like, yes, like, that's like my dreams, okay? They're weird visions. And, and unlike the parables where Jesus preaches and then he explains it, Zechariah just like drops it. And so I don't know if the original audience was just as baffled as we are or if they were like, oh yeah, the lady in the basket with the flying ladies. Like, yeah, we get that. I don't know. But all those strange visions, really the point of them is to point out the sinfulness of God's people, to hold out hope for a rebuilt people and a rebuilt kingdom. But all of this, as the guys in the Bible Project pointed out to us, all of this would have left the original recipients of the prophecy wondering, okay, is now the time for the kingdom? People are always asking that question in the Bible. You notice that? Is this the time for the next thing that you're going to do? And we're still asking that question, right? We're still asking questions about timing. Jesus, when are you going to return? 
And the original audience would have wondered that. When instead, and I, and I love this question that they posed in the video, God turns the question on them and in a sense says, don't worry about the timing. When will you become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's kingdom? Don't worry about the timing. Don't worry about the specifics. It's my job. I will build this kingdom. It's your job to enter into it, to receive it. To be that place as the people of God that is the in-between between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. To be that kind of docking station for the presence of God as the people of God. To be the place where the lordship of Jesus Christ is clear and is evident. To be those Jesus people. To live into those kingdom values. When will you become those kind of people? In the last couple of chapters, he gives us a beautiful picture of covenant revelation picture of the coming Messiah and what the kingdom of God will look like in the future. And all of that is designed to encourage the people to be faithful in their living, to turn back to holiness. Not to check out, not to say, okay, one day Jesus is going to do a lot of amazing things, so we'll just kind of make it. No. To check in, to lean into what God is doing now with this hopeful vision that it's only going to get better. So here's a couple of snapshots in Zechariah's prophecy in the second half, verse, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you think the answer is Jesus, the answer is Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. And he'll bring peace. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He's painting a picture that Jesus is coming. Continuing in chapter 13, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The fountain of blood. The blood of Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. We're getting closer to that day, friends. His kingdom is breaking in now, and yet the fullness is coming. It's coming. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We will worship him freely. We will enjoy his creation. We will enjoy one another. And we cannot even conceive of it, but there will be no sin. Even the smallest little glimpses of beautiful things that we experience in this life will be exponentially better. They will be purified. We will be the people that we were created to be. But again, what's the purpose of this vision? Not so that we'll check out and, and just become so heavenly-minded that we're no longer any earthly good, right? As it's been said, it's kind of a proverbial saying. It's hard to even know where that quote came from. That's not the point. The point is not to check out. The point of this vision that we now have seen partially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus and we long for in the second coming of Jesus, the point of that is to give us confidence, to give us steadiness, and to give us hope for the living of these days. To be a faithful people. 
who will be a point of contact with heaven as his kingdom comes into our lives and his rule and reign enters in and through us is displayed what it looks like to surrender to King Jesus. What if a beautiful image, what a thing that we have been called to. We began this morning singing about revival. Well, revival begins with repentance. That's where it starts. That's the first step to turn back to God, to renew ourselves before him and pray that he will revive us by the power of his spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of people we want to become. Would you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we thank you that you do not give up on us. That just like the people in the Old Testament, we continue time and time again to be unfaithful. But you are a faithful God. And you are faithful to build your kingdom and to create a people for yourself. And so God, would you make us more and more those people. Those people that are like Jesus. Those people who can demonstrate to the world even if imperfectly, God, that we can demonstrate to the world that there is a different way of being human, that there's a different kingdom. So God, shape us into those people. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters this morning that whatever act of surrender, whatever act of repentance is needed in their life, God, that you, by the power of your spirit, you would make that happen. You would turn their hearts. You would soften them and that they would see a renewal in their life. Father, we love you. We trust you. Help us to trust you more each and every day. Amen.